You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, in the old days, data were hard to get. I mean, you might have to spend years in a lab setting up an experiment to get some data. So what you did is you began with a theory. You had some idea about how something in nature works, so you construct this theory. Okay, give me an example. Oh, you know, uh, for example, how galaxies might spin around. You might (laughs) use the work of Kepler or something like that. So you had this very simple theory, and you said, you know, this is the way galaxies are going to spin. So I'm just going to go out, and I'm going to measure the way they actually spin. And you'd get a few fuzzy data points with big error bars, and you might or might not prove your theory. Okay, so the point is is that you start with the theory, and then you go out and you collect information. Exactly. That's the way it was. But this is being turned on its head now, because now data are cheap. Data. There, there, there are billions of bytes more of data out there on virtually any subject you can think of. So that means that you, you just go out there and you say, my goodness, that's funny, because it looks like a very high percentage of people who have this condition are also addicted to this brand of salami, or who knows? I mean, just... And right? that is a problem, well, that, it, that salami uh, yes. addiction. It'd okay. be good if we could find a cure for All that. Right. And so, no theory... But they found the cure for that condition. So the point is, there are a lot of data out there. Now, in the beginning, there was a byte. One byte. That's one letter of the alphabet. You've been chiseling that alpha all day, Dimitri. Ugh. And then there was the kilobyte. Right. A thousand times more data, 200 words, a short poem or a really long haiku. Thank you all for coming. The rain hits my head. Where is my umbrella now? Water is in my ears. That's excellent. That was great. I'm I'm not done. (laughs) I turn to the sky. Do not turn on your faucets. Your tears are not for me. That's excellent. That was great. Pretty, Pretty impressive. I do not fear wind. Oh, leaves, you rustle back and forth. When will you fall down? Okay. Here comes the megabyte. That's a million bytes. <laughs> that's a lot of mosquitoes. Now that's 200,000 words. It's a, a major novel. Scarlett O'Hara was not beautiful, but men seldom realized it when caught by her charm, as the Tarleton twins were. A megabyte is also a grainy photo. This photo's all the evidence you need, Sam. Great, doll, but what is this? A guy cracking a safe or a map of Brooklyn? The gigabyte. A billion bytes. The digerati are just getting warmed up. Terabyte. Flying dinosaur. Nope. It's a trillion bytes. 
That's a hundred of your favorite movies. Okay, so like Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Dirty Dancing, Return of the Jedi, and going back to the prequels, you got The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones. Dirty Dancing's one of your favorite films? I've never actually seen that movie. <laughs> now we're going up by factors of a thousand, and we're at? Pentabyte. That's like every movie ever made. So the entire works of George Lucas, Martin Scorsese, and Terry Gilliam. How many more do I have? Actually, you have a lot more movies. After pentabytes, you have extabytes, zettabytes, and yodabytes. Hmm, much data you have. Now that's the world's technological capacity for data storage. Hmm? Or it soon will be. Hmm. I mean, that's how much data we have sloshing around. If you lived in the time of Aristotle, a good fraction of the entire world's knowledge was down the street there in the Library of Alexandria. I mean, if you had a thumb drive then, you could have saved the library, or at least what was in it, when it burned. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley, and we're thinking big, big data on Big Picture Science. Atul Butte believes in numbers. He's not a mathematician, he's a doctor and division chief of systems medicine at Stanford. And it's there that a new system is underway in our approach to medicine. To find cures for disease, he says, we have to democratize the data. You can't keep these kinds of discoveries and the discovery process itself to just those few elite that really think they know what they're doing. Atul Butte wants the entrepreneurial spirit that ignited the Silicon Valley computer revolution applied to the genomic revolution. The term I would use for this, since we love those companies that have started in garages, like Hewlett-Packard and Apple, and we love those companies that have started in dorm rooms, like Google, Yahoo, and Facebook, the term I love for this is garage biotechs. When are we going to get the next Pfizer, the next Genentech, to start in some kid's garage? Because that kid today in that garage has more than a million, if not a billion measurements at their disposal and any mouse model they want to run with a credit card. Mice models on the Internet, credit cards, and lots and lots of data. Atul, what does big data really mean to you? Yeah, so big data is a term that we're using a lot, especially on the Internet and even in the lay press. To me, it's just an amazing amount of digital stuff we're creating in the world. The Economist magazine had the best estimate of this two summers ago. They had a special issue of The Economist just titled Big Data. And their estimate is that in this year, 2012, we will be generating two zettabytes of data. A zettabyte. Now, I, I, I hope I don't get a zettabyte, although I have some ointments that might help. How big is a zettabyte? So the, if you don't know your metric prefixes, it goes from kilo, which is a kilobyte, mega, giga, tera, we're familiar with terabytes now. We commonly buy computers with terabyte hard disks. That, that, that's a trillion. That's a trillion. Another thousandfold is a petabyte. And a petabyte is the order of magnitude of data that they use at the Large Hadron Collider for their discovery just a few months ago. One followed by 15 zeros. That's right. Another thousandfold up from there is an exabyte. And another thousandfold up from that is a zettabyte. So there's millions of times more data than they're looking at in uh, Switzerland. That's right. Millions of times more data. And by the way, we make two of those a year as a human species. And of course, next year we'll make four. Well, well tell me, what, what kind of data are these? I mean, I, I can imagine there's a lot of data about, you know, the billing information for my cell phone or stuff like that. But, but what kind of data are you talking about? Well, I think it can range in scope of in importance. It could be as trivial as one billion people using a website, say, as Facebook, reporting on their status. 
to the music and the video creations that we commonly now broadcast in digital format around the world. Okay, so this is just encoded information, and, and, you know, and it, it could be some cheesy sci-fi film that's been encoded and put on YouTube. I mean, it, it could be that, or it could be measurements of cancers that are still waiting for cures, and okay. that's what gets me excited. Okay, so we're talking about medical, big medical data here. Uh, so. How does this affect research? There's a lot of data out there. I mean, you know, I go to my doctor's office, and he's got shelf after shelf of data there, all on paper. But, you know, uh, so so what's different about this large data set for medicine? Yeah, so I think there's two big changes that happened, I guess you could say, over the past five to ten years. We're not just having big data, but it's also big public data. And so that means is it's not just data that, for example, LinkedIn or Facebook or some other a government organization keeps on you, but this is data that you can download too if you have enough storage and hard disk space and compute power. So it's big public data. And the other thing that's really changed is that in medicine, in the study of biomedicine and research, we now use measurement technologies to start to fill up that big data. For example, sequencing our genomes. We can talk about that. And in that way, we're able to generate a lot of data and the mandates from the funding agencies like the government, NIH, or the journals make us share that data on the Internet. So in theory and actually in practice, even a high school kid can go download the raw data that the top scientists generate today. Okay. Well, that sounds sort of interesting. I could download these data. But what am I trying to do with it? I mean, you've got all these data. Does that give you some way to approach the treatment of disease, which is, I guess, the bottom line for most people. Yeah, so we love to get to therapies uh, or treatments. We'd love to even get to diagnostics, for example, diagnosing a disease. We might even love to get to prognostics, who is going to develop a disease. All of those are possible questions that one can ask of data. But I think you're highlighting a point, and that is that the hard part now is figuring out what do you want to do with this kind of data? What questions are enabled when you have that data already able to be downloaded? Can you give me some good examples? Yeah. So, for example, uh, I, the example I love the best is a high school kid today can go to, for example, a website run by the National Center for Biotechnology Information, NCBI. And NCBI is run by the National Institutes of Health. It's part of the National Library. And a high school kid today can go type in breast cancer on their website and can go download almost, let's say, a quarter or half a billion measurements on breast cancer. And why is that amazing? Because that's more measurements that that high school kid can get to, more measurements than any breast cancer researcher will ever have in their lab. Because any one researcher has to share their data along with their competitors. So now that high school kid has more samples at their disposal than so, anyone else. So they have this enormous data set. I mean, the, the, the sum of all the data of all the people there, or at least a Sorry. large fraction, all the people doing breast cancer and diagnostics, whatever. So what sort of question can they pose to the data? I mean, they might be able to write a little program. A lot of people can write simple programs to right. go through those data and, and, and do what? I'll give you a simple example. So if you look at all of that data, it turns out about 1,100 independent labs have been studying breast cancer using a similar kind of technology, 1,100. And so maybe a third of them have said, well, they think the best way to study breast cancer is to look at real human samples. And then a third of them say, well, actually, the real way to study breast cancer is to be able to try some therapy. So you have to study in these mouse models. And then another third say, well, the real way to study breast cancer is to study these breast cancer cancers in a dish or a petri dish. So you got the petri dish folks, you got the mouse folks, you got the human sample folks. And these are kind of almost religious camps in how they really believe these disorders could be studied. 
that high school kid can come in to say, well, we're going to see what's in common across everyone's models. What are the genes that are driving it across all 1,100 labs? And it turns out a high school kid can actually do that better than any one of those 1,100 labs. But, all right. This is somewhat contradictory to what I learned in middle school about how science works, where you have a theory and, and then you go into the lab and you cook up an experiment to either prove or disprove your theory, hopefully to disprove it because that's a cleaner result. But this is sort of bottom up. We go into the data and you find out what the correlations are and then you can maybe have a theory afterwards. You're precisely hitting the point. I think Chris Anderson is one I quote the most who said in Wired that science itself is becoming obsolete because that scientific method, right, that old-fashioned maybe idea of generating the question and then going to go gather that data, it's completely turned on its head. We have plenty of data now, what's the question we want to ask of it? That's the new magic here. And I think we need training to do this, right? Of course, we need to know how to manipulate the data and good proper statistics and computer science. But we also know what they would call domain knowledge. What are the unmet needs here in this field that I might already have data sitting on my desktop to help me answer? So, so could it be that maybe the cure for breast cancer is just sitting in these data waiting for somebody to find the right correlation of genes or, or whatever? I fundamentally believe that. Well, that's fantastically exciting. Um, and I can tell from the excitement in your voice that you find it exciting. It's unbelievable. Uh, have, have any discoveries been made this way? Yeah. So uh, we just had a discovery published in a journal called Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. It's a decent journal. And we took exactly this approach. Instead of breast cancer, we looked at a particularly vicious disease called type 2 diabetes or adult onset diabetes. We call it adults, but actually a lot of kids are going to get this over the next few years because of the obesity epidemic. We just simply looked at and downloaded 130 independent experiments on type 2 diabetes, 130 different people around the world. And it turns out the number one gene that changes the most in everyone's experiments is a receptor, okay, important protein gets turned on and off, a receptor that no one had really pursued. So we chased it down. We figured out that this receptor is an important receptor for type 2 diabetes. It's a brand new one. And in fact, we then concluded the paper by actually designing a drug against it and showed that actually in mouse models, the drug can reduce the blood sugars, which is the goal in type 2 diabetes or treating it. So we went from public data to a therapy to a diagnostic, all in about uh, 18 months of work, again, starting with the same data any high school kid can get to today. Well, you bring up an important point. Okay, so I'm an 11th grade student out there, and I go to these data, and I find this correlation, and I say, you know, it looks to me like if you just applied this drug, which was developed for some what seemed to have been unrelated disease, and applied over here, it might work. Well, having said that, how do I convince anybody to follow up? Because I can't follow up. Yeah, it's a great question. I think maybe 10 years ago, we might have been stuck because not only did we have to find a collaborator with the right mouse models to try a drug, we'd have to learn their vocabulary to try to explain what we were doing. And like it or not, believe it or not, there are ways to get the mouse models done with a credit card. So another kind of revolution that's happened is that there are now what are called contract research organizations, or CROs, that have been fulfilling these kinds of service roles for the pharmaceutical companies. So for a couple thousand dollars, you can test whatever drug that you really want to test in a mouse model. Now, if that's still too much money on your credit card, there are increasingly new do-it-yourself types of arrangements. Uh, certainly here in the Bay Area, we have one called BioCurious, where for about the same fee that you would pay for a fitness center, you have access to your own incubators and PCR machines and sequencers that you can start to learn. And it's almost like a tech shop for biology. 
and maybe you can even learn how to do this part yourself. Okay. So uh, I'm a high school student. I've got, uh, you know, this, this idea that this approach may help with that disease. I want to try it out on them, our laboratory rats, whatever, <laughs> and, and my credit card won't pay for a $10,000 test, but maybe I can get a Kickstarter campaign going, whatever. And, and, and all I have to do is go to a website and, and buy this. That's right. It literally add to shopping cart. Add to shopping cart. This is fantastic. I have to say that this bottom-up approach to medicine, I mean, it's very appealing. It, it reminds me of a story that I don't recall entirely, but how the vaccine for smallpox was discovered. Somebody noticed something about milkmaids, That's right? right. That's exactly right. Was it Jenner, I hope, that noticed along the way that people who were exposed to cowpox, especially the milkmaids, were not the ones that were getting smallpox and figured that out. I think the bottom-up approach, we've seen it before. We've seen it in many fields, especially in the IT fields and the computer fields that sit around us here in Silicon Valley. I think it's going to be amazing to see this kind of bottom-up happening in the life sciences as well. Atul Butte, thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you very much for having me. Atul Butte is Associate Professor and Division Chief of Systems Medicine at Stanford University, and while writing his name and title, took up about 100 bytes of space. Saying it, as I did now, took up more than 100,000 bytes or so, so it's considerably more. Very much more. Coming up, imagine collecting all that data about yourself and your body. Meet a man who believes in self-knowledge through numbers. The big picture of big data on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Welcome back to Big Picture Science as we investigate how huge collections of publicly accessible data may change science, health, and medicine for one. Seth, do you pay attention to your health? To my health? Well, of course. It's hard not to, actually. (laughs) Do you collect information on yourself? Well, some. I mean, I I, uh, chart my weight. I have a weight chart that I print out, you know, every couple of months, and I just every day weigh myself. You do. Well, in, in that way, you're like Larry Smarr. He's been collecting information on himself. Well, 10 years ago, it was one number, which is my weight when I stayed on the scale. Well, I'm not surprised that somebody else monitors their weight. In fact, I'd be surprised to find too many people who don't. Well, he actually collects more numbers than just his weight. Five years ago, it was up to 100 numbers, which was the number of different things I was tracking by taking blood samples. Wow, blood samples. I, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I have the stamina to get a blood sample out of myself every day. Well, he goes even further than that in collecting numbers. He's had his DNA sequenced or part of it. And now he's going one step further 
I'm having a whole genome sequencing of my gut microbes, and that's 25 billion numbers. That, that's incredible that he has the guts to <laughs> sequence the microbes in his gut. I mean, I, maybe it'll be a major contribution to uh, microbial research. And just who is this Larry Smarr who is collecting all this data on himself, including the analysis of his gut biome? Well, he's a physicist and a computer engineer who was an early proponent of high-speed network systems, which incidentally became the precursor to the Internet. He works on distributed computing as the director of the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology, or CalLit2. Now, that's some of what he does. He's also an early adopter of the quantified self movement, applying all he knows about data collection to his own body. And this isn't just an unusual project by an idiosyncratic computer wizard. Well, actually it is. But it may soon be the routine approach to health for people, according to Larry Smarr. Because all this health data is... It's all available to them. You know, what people need to get used to is they have to become personally responsible for the health of their own body. The doctor has about one ten-thousandth of the time during a year with you that you have with you. Let's get a better idea of how you collect some of this data on yourself. I mean, we know that we can step on a scale. Mm-hmm. That's how we can get our weight. What about some of the other information that you that sure. you have? What tools do you use? Well, it's, it's very simple. When you go to see the doctor, tell them that you want a Xerox copy of all of the results from your medical test and then go home and start putting them in a spreadsheet so that you can compare them over time. And then today, because of Google, you can educate yourself about what these things mean. The most important thing is just to look and see, are each of these variables, your glucose, your cholesterol numbers and so forth, are they within normal bounds or not? Now, it's one thing to collect all this information from tests that your doctor has done and look at it, but it's another to collect information on yourself. And I know that you've used a Mm -hmm. number of pieces of equipment, something called a Fitbit, a Polarware Link, a Zio. I I have not heard of any of these. (laughs) Yeah, this is actually, you need to get out more. These are just standard consumer products. Go buy them on Amazon. So zillions of people wear Fitbits. The Fitbit is just this little thing about two inches long that just clips on your pocket or in your purse. And it's a three-dimensional accelerometer. It just measures how many steps a day you have, your caloric burn. And what that does is gives you an immediate feedback on, are you getting enough exercise or not? The same with Zio. I've worn a Zio now for close to 500 nights. And it's just a little headband that a sensor on in the middle of your forehead that measures the state of your sleep every 30 seconds, whether it's deep sleep, REM, which is dream sleep, rapid eye movement, light sleep, or you're awake. And then it graphs it out for you right there on your smartphone, just an app, and then provides all kinds of coaching to get better sleep. Now, you actually helped diagnose a condition in your body because you discovered that something called the CRP mm-hmm. was high. Now, what is that and, and where did you find that? Was, that? was that in your blood? So it's called complex reactive protein, and it's one of the most important things you should ask your doctor to measure. It's like taking your temperature. It's your body's state of inflammation. And we're living in an epic epidemic of inflammation in this country, mostly driven by the food we're eating. In fact, I understand that before you started this project, 
that's a lot of what you were eating. <laughs> yeah. Big Macs and so forth. Is that right? Drinking Cokes? I was in the center of the obesity epidemic in the Midwest for 20 years. In fact, basically I was there when the whole obesity epidemic started. And I was way overweight. Actually, when I got to La Jolla in 2000, I discovered I was pre-diabetic. So I started measuring things in my blood, and I found out to my shock that my inflammation was 500% <laughs> over the upper limit. When you say you're measured, you were measuring things in your blood, you mean you were drawing your own blood? And no, no, I was not drawing my own blood. So people don't understand this. It's one of the most important things to get. 25% of blood tests in this country are outside of hospitals and doctors. There's places like Quest Diagnosis and so forth. In any of your cities, there are a whole bunch of places that all day long just draw people's blood for blood tests. There's a whole industry of this. I see. So you went in and you knew to have them ask for a CRP count. Right. So actually, there's a place on the web called yourfuturehealth.com. And they have a whole suite of tests that I really recommend, both blood test and stool test. And they send you a little kit. And you just walk into this place like in a strip mall or in a medical complex, and you just hand them the kit, sit down. They put a needle in your arm, just like if you were at a doctor's office, take your blood, and then they send it off, and then you get back on the net all your values. I see. Okay. And then you that's how you learned that your CRP was 500% higher than it Yeah, you know, five times the upper limit. And then by last New Year's, it was up to 27 times. Now, the reason that might cause you some concern, because this is like your body's thermostat, essentially, is if you are running at a constant four times, okay, and here I am at 27 times, if you're just four times the upper limit, you quintuple your future chance of heart disease. It means that you're chronically inflamed. Yes, it does. Okay. That's what I discovered. And so I started on a quest that took, oh, another five years before I found out what in my body was causing this constant chronic inflammation. And, and what was it? Well, eventually I traced it down to six inches of my large intestine, my sigmoid colon. By using stool samples, I found out that I had, uh, which is a very simple, people I know are sort of weird about stool, but they just need to get with the program. Um, I would I would do stool samples all day long. Just did one this morning, actually, uh, compared to taking one blood sample because nobody has to stick a needle in you. You do it in your own bathroom, and then you just FedEx off the kit. But what that told me was that I had a very high level. Actually, I had a hundred over 100 times the upper limit in one of my inflammation variables called lactoferrin that you can get in one of these stool tests. And so with that, I then got both colonoscopy and an MRI, and sure enough, found that six inches of my colon, the walls of the colon were five times as thick as they were supposed to be from inflammation. But the point is, I knew this several years before I could finally track down a doctor that could work with me. What are you doing to bring down that inflammation? Well, it's not really known. Uh, there is no cure. And so I'm pushing the envelope on this. It's basically Crohn's disease. I'm pushing the envelope because there's a whole revolutionary new set of information that's never been available before for Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, which is who are the microbes that are in your gut? How do you measure them? And how do you measure changes in them? And that's where the Venner Institute, one of the world's leading research institutes, 
working with UC San Diego, one of the world's leading research universities, on pushing as fast as we can to understand that world of the microbes. And that's why you're having the biome of the microbes in your gut. That's why you're having that sequence. The gut microbiome. Well, in this way, this is why you're unusual. You've worked with computers. I would assume that your background in working with data with supercomputers helps you find a signal in the noise. You're a researcher by training. You know what to do with all that data, but is this really a model for the average person who you know, tries to keep their weight under control, maybe checks their body for moles and so forth, right. goes to the doctor once a year? No, not at all. What it is is... I am experimenting on myself. It's taking a half of a CPU year of computing and some incredibly expert software people that work here at CalIT2 to do this. However, that shows in five to 10 years, this will be a routine test that you can get at your doctor. And we will use that next five to 10 years of learning this stuff to bring it down to where the doctor is now empowered and knows what to do with this information. And this will become just like a routine medical test, like a blood test. So part of what I do, the earlier things we talked about, any citizen can do today for a few hundred dollars. It's available on the web. You can, you know, get your blood, you can get your stool types and so forth. This more researchy stuff that I'm doing on the microbiome is, if anything, more important than the other. But The way science works is, you know, a few people are at the frontier doing this, then it becomes easier and easier, then some companies start up and so forth, and in five to ten years, it becomes a routine. Larry Smarr, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, my pleasure, and I just hope that it helps people understand themselves a little bit better, because everyone's going to have to be taking more control of their bodies. Larry Smarr is great with spreadsheets and is a meticulous collector of information as a physicist, a computer engineer, and the director of the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology, or CALIT2. Fascinating stuff, but I'm still wondering how he's going to get that gut microbiome sequenced I mean, there are a lot of microbes in your stomach. And and actually, what what good does it do? Well, it sounds like you need more information. I do, and I know just whom to call because I've got it here on my speed dial. Let's see, Jackaroni's Deep Dish Pizza, Juju's Juice Shack, and JCVI, the J. Craig Venter Institute, where Larry's getting those microbes accounted for. Hello, this is Karen Nelson, JCVI. Uh, Karen, we just spoke with Larry Smarr. And he says that you're helping to sequence his gut microbiome. Is that correct? Yes, this is true. We've been working with Larry since the end of last year to do analysis of the bacteria that live in his gastrointestinal tract. Now, but what is a gut microbiome? And and by the way, why is the Venter Institute interested in it? So since 2006, we've had several programs focused on studying the bacteria associated with the human body. So what most people don't realize is that we have an order of magnitude more microbial cells than human cells, and we're just starting to understand the impact of these organisms on our health and disease state. So it sounds like you're going to be helping Larry with his gastrointestinal troubles, but you're also helping the rest of us, perhaps. Yes, and we're just using Larry as a model for what individuals can do with their own bodies. Now, I'm almost afraid to ask this, but how are you going to get a sample of Larry's... uh... Gut microbes. 
well, surprise, surprise, we already got one. And the first one he just took himself, put it in a styrofoam box and mailed to us. And we processed it here on campus. I, I take it the sample is what everybody's thinking it was. Yes, it happens to be a sample of fecal material. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I, I've got to admire the, uh, the the dedication of somebody who's willing to uh, not only get that sample, but then ship it around. Is each gut microbiome different? I mean, if you hadn't gotten Larry Smarr's microbiome, uh, somebody, you know, worked in the next lab over, would that be substantially different? So they're not substantially different. Uh, so the National Institutes of Health just finished a study looking at 300 healthy people. And there are a lot of similarities in healthy people. And people who have a disease show variations from this healthy state. And that's what we're interested in looking at with Larry's case. Okay, so uh, Larry gets this information from you, a genomic reading of his gut biome. What, what can he possibly do with that information? So the DNA gets extracted and pushed, um, pushed through latest sequencing technologies, and we generate gigabytes of data, so uh, millions and millions of sequencing reads. And we put all this data on a little disk and mail it to him. And he can upload this data onto his technology analysis platforms to interpret differences in bacterial or viral populations when comparing to similar data generated from healthy people. And also it might tell him if he could take a probiotic, for example, to return his gastrointestinal tract to that of a normal person. Do you think that this will help others? I mean, are there a lot of people who have conditions that are similar enough to Larry's that uh, this will be, uh, you know, the kind of medical advance they might write about in the New York Times? Absolutely. I envision in the next 10 to 20 years that these kinds of analyses are going to be routine, that it will become a part of your normal, you know, checkup. Well, Karen Nelson, thank you uh, very much for uh, telling me this. Uh, you sure are welcome, and thanks for calling. Have a good day. Thanks to Karen Nelson from the J. Craig Venter Institute. I now know more about my gut microbiome and Larry Smars. Maybe too much information there. However, for astronomer Jerry Harp, there's just no such thing as TMI when it comes to the search for extraterrestrial signals. After all, he's looking for a needle in the haystack of cosmic noise. Jerry is the director for SETI Research at the SETI Institute. The search for radio signals from extraterrestrial transmitters is done with radio telescopes that generate tons of data every second. And to help process it, Jerry occasionally turns from computers to humans. Well, we have 42 antennas, and each one could possibly cover about 10 gigahertz of frequency. So if you add that all up, it's about a terabyte per second that comes out of the telescopes themselves. We can only analyze about 1% of that at the moment, but we're growing. Terabyte. Now, if I go down to my local electronics store, I can buy a terabyte hard drive. It costs me about $100, $150, but you'd need one of those every second to record all the data. So... Clearly, you're not recording all those data. No, we're not. We're passing the data through some real-time processing machines that search the data for SETI signals continuously. And once we've searched the data for signals, we're done with it. So we just let it go and then carry on to the next bit. You, you say, let it go. <laughs> it falls on the floor, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just throw it out. <laughs> well, we can't store it. What we do store, though, is all the measurements of signals of any kind that have been seen. So Jerry said he really is a kind of 
big data experiment, isn't it? Even though absolutely, you, you yeah, know. we're already taking on some of the uh, recent models of how to handle new data. One thing that we do is that we analyze the data and process it in real time. The next generation of what we're looking at will expand even further. Our filters that take the data that we get, this enormous quantity of data from our telescopes, are designed to pick out just certain signals. But we are working with machine learning specialists and are converting our systems so that we can do real-time analysis looking for outliers, looking for anomalies, looking for strange things that we've never seen before, that computers never seen before. And it can bring those up to us, and then we can examine them. Well, isn't part of the problem that given this enormous fire hose of data that are coming into the Allen Telescope Array, you have to have computers, of course, looking at the data. You can't do it with your eyes. And yet, our visual system is pretty good at picking out what you call outliers, isn't it? Is there any way to take advantage of that? Yeah, there's a project called SETI Live, which we're currently doing with parts of the radio band that are so full of congestion from other transmitters that are coming from Earth that the machine is completely confused by those data. So we send them out through the SETI Live program to real live human beings who actually look at the output. And much like the mushroom hunters who can spot a morel as, as just one lump among a thousand lumps under an oak tree, our visual systems can spot things that they haven't seen before. They're very good at noticing oddities. And so we're getting these uh, human participants to help us categorize data, pre-categorize so that we can then train a machine to do the same thing that somehow our brains do in a way that we don't understand. So it could be that, in fact, despite all the computer processing, despite the torrent of data, that signal that you're looking for might actually be spotted by somebody sitting behind their computer at home with a pair of eyes and a sense for what's unusual. That's right. And we'd be more than happy if it happened that way. And how long would it take before you knew that a, a real signal was a real signal? I mean, you know, in the movies, it doesn't take very long, usually a few seconds before people start jumping up and shouting, hey, hey we, found, <laughs> we finally found it. I know that it, it's not that quick. How long would it take? I would say at least a week to be fairly confident. First of all, a lot of radio interference that we get, which looks like signals from outer space, but are actually local, like TV stations on Earth. That local interference is different at every observatory. So we'd call up other observatories on other sides of the world, in Australia maybe, so that they can look during our, whenever the source is set from our point of view, and ask them if they see exactly the same thing we see. And after a couple of corroborations like that, we might be convinced that it's definitely coming from outer space. Well, finally, Jerry, you've just taken over as the uh, director of SETI research here at the SETI Institute. That's so right. So you're the new guy in the job, although you're not a new guy to the SETI Institute. You've, you've been here about a decade or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, 11 or 12 years. So uh, you must feel that the chances are at least reasonable. I think they are. I think that SETI has a special place in uh, the human search for life on other planets, especially for the next 15 years, I think, or maybe 20 and the reason is that the telescopes that are required to see biological evidence in distant stars are still a long way off. We hold a very special and privileged place right now. Jerry Harp, thanks so much for uh, talking with me. You're welcome. Jerry Harp is director for SETI Research at the SETI Institute.
Next, data as a tool to encourage democracy or to invade privacy. Big data on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Big Picture Science. For some people, big data means solving big problems. For others... Big Brother comes to mind. Now, that's not Deidre Mulligan's primary worry, but the assistant professor at the University of California Berkeley School of Information is concerned that increased data collection allows for increased surveillance. And a loss of privacy. Molly went public to chat with Deidre Mulligan. Well, Deidre, I'm meeting you in a public cafe so we could discuss privacy. It seems an appropriate thing to do. And let's just begin with a general question about privacy. For someone who is a consumer of data, you know, a participant in the Internet world, I think we know that we have to be careful what we put on Facebook, and we know that there are cookies tracking us as we, you know, surf the Internet. But can you give me an overview, perhaps, of the other things we might not be thinking about that are invasions in one definition of privacy? Well... The networked environments alter a lot of the kind of structural barriers that we have relied upon to protect our privacy, right? So you mentioned Facebook, and one of the issues with Facebook, traditionally people have been able to segment their lives in ways that allow them to exercise uh, the ability to present different selves, right? Not that they're lying, right? We just have a work face, we have an after work face, we have stuff that we disclose to our family, that we withhold in other settings. And in the physical environment where we have literally spaces that have walls and we have communities, when we're in them, we actually can see who's in the room, we know who we're with, there's lots of cues that tell us what sort of expectations we can have and how far information is likely to flow. When you're on Facebook, some of the pushback and some of the concerns, and as you said, some of the reasons that people are now reluctant to disclose information, is that you don't have the same ability to separate different piles of information and to present yourself differently to different audiences. You know, we started this conversation here in this cafe. It's a very public place. Uh, But as we talk more and more about privacy, maybe we should go somewhere more private. You got it. We've moved indoors to another space that is quiet and and semi-private, although it is ironic that it's hard to find a quiet, private place to to talk to you, but that's very fitting for this conversation. Yeah, even in physical environments, it can, it's becoming, you know, if you live in an urban environment like we do, it can be quite difficult to find a place where you're not observed and you can't be overheard. Technology, even in the physical environment, is making that far more complicated, right? The presence of surveillance cameras, the presence of all of the handheld devices that we have that can very easily be flipped into record mode. 
um, make it difficult even for those of us who are quite careful, and some might say, someone like me might be even paranoid, right, make it difficult to protect your privacy. In the physical environment, most of my daily activities do not leave a trail, right? My footprints are not burnt into the concrete. Um, if I pay in cash, nobody knows that I was there unless the store has a video surveillance camera. And then even they'd have to kind of correlate it, and most people don't do that. In the online environment, basically everything I do, every click that I make, every email I send, every text message, every place I go where my phone is activated and the location is collected, you know, generates a bit of data that ends up generally being stored somewhere um, and can be associated with differing degrees of work with me. Well, I don't know if this is a privacy issue, and, and maybe this is, is off subject a little bit, but I learned that Picasso, which helps you organize your pictures, can go through and recognize the faces of the people that you've taken pictures of. I don't know what it is about this, but it, it makes me feel a little uneasy. Yeah, well, on the one hand, right, when you're using the technology on your own photos and it helps you find all the photos of your kids or your family members on your hard drive, you feel really empowered because you've been able to consolidate your memories, right? You know you're not going to lose them. On the other hand, you're probably thinking, oh, if I can do this on my lowly laptop, right, what is the government or what is the commercial sector able to do? And in fact, if we have video cameras that are embedded with facial recognition systems, they basically, when they see your face, if they have enough other images of your face that they can kind of reconcile it and identify who you are, they can pull up a whole bunch of other data, right? It may be demographic data, it may be your name and your address, depending on what sort of records they have access to. And so when you're walking down the street, all of a sudden, you might assume that you're relatively anonymous, you're in a crowd, and it turns out they know exactly who you are. Deidre Mulligan, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome. My pleasure. And persevering to find a place where we could speak in (laughs) semi-privacy. Indeed. Deidre Mulligan is an assistant professor at the University of California Berkeley School of Information and faculty director of the Berkeley Center of Law and Technology. Now, her descriptions of facial recognition software are chilling, but it's the very thing that her colleagues across campus are focused on addressing, and I'm making my way there now to discuss an optimistic take on big data collection, the Data and Democracy Initiative, here in the office of... Ken Goldberg, Professor of Engineering, Information, and Art at UC Berkeley. So we're thinking of data as a reference to all kinds of media, digital media specifically, but we're looking at things like smartphones, internet, social media. So and what's happening is that data is proliferating at a hugely enormous pace right now. So think, think of Twitter. There, there's some 10 million posts going up per minute or something like that. So how do you filter through all of that? And how do you make sense of that data? Do you have a Twitter account? I do. Ken underscore Goldberg <laughs> is my handle. There's optimism here with this project, the Data and Democracy Initiative, in creating more vigorous civic engagement. And can you give me an example of how these digital tools might do that? One of our new projects we're very excited about is called the Rashomon Project. And this was motivated by the confrontations between students and police at 
two campuses, the University of California at Berkeley here and also the University of California at Davis in fall of 2011. And these were two protests that got particularly heated, and the police used what many felt was excessive force. They, they um, forced students to the ground. They had batons. And in the case of UC Davis, they had pepper spray. And the videos were quite alarming. Some people also felt that there, were, there was provocation, that the students had actually provoked these responses. So, this, so there's a huge amount of data out there. This is the new digital video data. But the challenge is that it wasn't being organized in any coherent way. So even people who saw something that might be quite alarming, they said, well, I'm not sure I've seen the whole picture. And they would kind of dismiss it. So we started thinking about, could we produce a site that would be essentially a repository for people to send video? And then what we would do is, first of all, anonymize it so no one could be prosecuted essentially for, for having taken video, but then also we could align all the video chronologically. So you would see a sequence, all the different perspectives would be shown simultaneously, and then you could move a slider around to indicate what particular time period you were interested in. And then when something happened, you know, a critical moment when there's a student who goes down, we could immediately, you could say, okay, this is a segment I want to watch, and I want to watch it from these eight cameras. And one of the other things that comes up is the issues of privacy. So if you're going to post things on the web and there's individuals there who may or may not want their identity to be known. So we're using a, a tool that is now available from YouTube that blurs faces from video. So you might actually post the, um, the confrontation between the police and the students, but the faces of the policemen and the faces of the students might be blurred? Exactly. No, in fact, you need to do that because if you don't have permission, you could actually cause quite a um, quite a problem. So what we are doing is posting that we're going to post the videos with the faces blurred. Um, we also will keep the unblurred version. But what we're going to make available for the public to view and analyze will be we'll have the faces blurred. And the idea that they would be identified and targeted for their political views, maybe at their workplace or by government or whoever it might be. Exactly. Right. And you can imagine that in certain parts of the world, it could be fatal mm -hmm. if you're videotaped. So we want to be, protect people. And that's really important. That's why this is delicate material. We're working with the um, Camille Crittenden is now the, um, the staff director of the Data and Democracy Initiative. She has a history in the Human Rights Center here at Cal. So she's very sensitized, sensitive to these, these matters. And we're, we're also talking with the, the Hague about what counts as evidence and, and, and also to activist groups about what they want to see and what they don't. For example, another part of it is that when you take a video and it, it gets uploaded, there's a lot of metadata associated with it. Often your name, um, the ID, the location, all kinds of identifying things. We're taking care to strip all of that out when we post it. So it sounds like what you're doing is a lot of this data is out there. People are taking pictures, they're taking um, video, and it's all out there, but it's not organized. So we sort of go willy-nilly from one site to another and collecting information, but it's hard to come up with a, a cohesive picture of, of what's going on, and that's what you want to provide. That's exactly right. I'm, that's what I'm really interested in. I mean, maybe it's my side of, from an engineering perspective, that's my instinct, is that I want to get, get this in some coherent organization structure so that you can make more sense out of it. So it's actually ultimately more effective than it would be if you're just a piece here and a piece there. Ken Goldberg, thank you so much for talking to us.
Molly, it's such a pleasure. Ken Goldberg is professor of engineering, information, and art at the University of California, Berkeley. Well, you know, Molly, it's sometimes not obvious when you're in the midst of a revolution, and we are. I mean, this data revolution, it's just like, I don't know, 100 years ago when Andrew Carnegie built libraries around the country. And it's touching every aspect of our life, from democracy movements to our interest in privacy, our health, and the search for cures for disease in general, and of course also looking for uh, information in the cosmos. I mean, I just cannot believe that I can carry in my pocket a device that gives me access to more information than I would have by walking in the doors of the Library of Congress. We just concluded another hour of information thanks to our production staff, that is, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Sholsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to big data. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program, Big Picture Science? You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because you just get a few more bits per second, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. No, no, little bird. Do not fly from this hilltop. Let your wings be still. I think I think that's great. I think No, we can I have more. Rapid, okay. Oh, grassy hillside, will you be my companion? Sun shines on us both. Okay, well, I think we're going to... Actually, I still have more. For you, little ant, your tiny feet march and march. Rest, you do not know. You're quite talented. Oh, thank you. Uh, I do still have more. Apple tree, oh, apple tree, your red fruit is not to be. Winter is now here. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.